In July, I was asked to open the 2018 Air IndyCon in Adelaide, Australia, by interviewing the keynote speaker, Molly Newman. Molly has been an important figure in the American music landscape for decades, including as the drummer of seminal riot girl band Bratmobile. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, I interview the fascinating Molly Newman about her life in the music business. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Molly Newman. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for being awake. And it's here. quite impressive. I know. <laughs> I know. I feel like Molly and I sitting here, both being drummers. There's some sort of joke that I should be making. <laughs> Not totally sure how it would go, but you guys think about. Someone that will tell us later. Yeah. Figure that out later. Well, this is really a joy for me to be able to interview Molly. I've known Molly for many years, and I think this is just going to be a great opportunity for me to ask her questions that I don't normally get to ask her in real life. I'm going to find out new things about you. Okay. Very exciting. Okay, so my first question is, what was the first album you ever bought? Well, I was telling Rachel this, I swear to God, hopefully someone here will find me later and tell me what it was, but I was here in the mid-late 70s my first time. And it was a brother or sister or fake brother and sister duo that sang hits of Did Do Run Run and other sort of things like that. They wore white on the record cover. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I know I'm not the only 47-year-old here. <laughs> anyway, that was my first record that it I bought the Australian album of. Record. Yes, I bought it here and probably in Cheralgon where I was visiting my uncle in the 70s. When you were six? Six or seven, yeah. Okay, so and you I, got to jump on the rest of But us. that was like hits. I just, I loved Sean Cassidy. So that, Sean Cassidy. And then as I became, you know, more critical, I suppose I, I had the Fame soundtrack. That was an important one. <laughs> and 5440, the Canadian band. What, like in high school, were you, were you a big music fan in high school? I was, but I grew up in D.C. and there was no college radio in D.C. So the only free music that I had access to was what was on the radio. It was mostly R&B. There was a rock station. So it was a pretty funny mix of the things that were the most important to me. I really loved R&B and a local sort of version of R&B called Go-Go. And then the rock bands of the 80s and 90s and New Wave. I loved Michael Jackson and Prince and all of the pop too. Were you like the crazed music kid digging through bins kind of music listener? I didn't have enough money to do that. So I don't know if that's just one of those other sort of things when you contrast the current environment of access to everything for free versus how much you know, investment it took to buy a record for $10. I was pretty strategic. I did... You know, I'll confess to having done a, a record and tape club for a first batch of my first catalog of like that had probably the police and Beach Boys and some things I thought I really needed to have Rolling Stones. Okay, so let's talk about now. I'm a little confused. You ended up at Evergreen, but did you start at University of Oregon? Yes. Yes. Okay, so not that any of you care, but those are not <laughs> in the same town. They are somewhat far apart in 
two different states. It's true. So what drew me to Olympia was my next door neighbor in the dorms at the University of Oregon was a woman named Allison Wolf, who also has a cool podcast. If you have a chance to check it out, it's on Tidal, but it's also on YouTube as well. It's called I'm in the Band. And she was my next door neighbor from Olympia. And I had never, she was the one who exposed me to the tapes of K Records and all of these bands that were coming from there and uh, had never heard anything like this music. And she was such a personality. She had taken a gap year to study abroad in Thailand, which in 1988 and 89 was not something that was done. <laughs> but, I mean, people didn't travel to Thailand generally then anyway that were American, and she went there on her own straight out of high school. And so she was presenting me, you know, I thought I was very cosmopolitan. I come from Washington, D.C. It's the nation's capital, and she's from this small town, the capital of Washington State. But she had done all of these things and had all of this experience and worldview that was completely shocking to me. And she was my best friend and ended up being my creative partner in, in Bratmobile. And, and we had a fanzine and, and other things over the years. So she was the one who told me about Olympia. The first show I saw in Olympia was Beat Happening in the Melvins and Nirvana in a Grange Hall with a ceiling about this high. And it was just transformational and, and shocking to be able to see music like that in a room half this size. It was incredible. Was Nirvana called Nirvana then? Or they were, were they called Nirvana, still... yeah. They, okay. Bleach had already come out. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you guys started doing the zine at University of Oregon, or is that after you moved yeah. To, yeah. to Evergreen? So what, like, what was, just set the scene for those of us who weren't living in the Pacific Northwest in America in the early 90s. What, what was the sentiment that sort of drove sure. you to create that zine? Yeah, so we had a fanzine called Girl Germs, and the motivation for that was probably before we thought we, we wanted to start a band because we thought it was cool and lots of people did it, but I was like taking guitar at college. I had, <laughs> I was just, I didn't know how to start that. You know, I had never been encouraged to or had seen models of women and girls playing rock instruments. So I just figured, okay, well, I have to know some chords. I take a class in college. But that was probably when I started going through the bins and we realized that there weren't that many women making records. Uh, there certainly weren't that many on record covers. So if we didn't know, we'd have to flip it over and find out who was in the band. So we were motivated by recognizing and sort of wanting to share as many bands and people behind the scenes that were making records and putting on shows and running record companies that we could find. And so that was what our fanzine Girl Germs was about. There was a model for that in that our other friends had also started fanzines and a lot of them were women and a lot of them were talking about issues of feminism and it was like the cool thing to do. We wanted to talk about feminism and talk about things, but our focus was really documentation. So the show that you mentioned, Beat Happening and, and the Melvins and sort of the part that people don't know a lot about the, the big Nirvana story that everyone's fascinated by is that those guys were obsessed with the Melvins and they followed them everywhere. And so did my husband, Slim Moon, who started Kill Rockstars. And that was sort of a thing at that time. But I mean, if you listen to the Melvins, you don't necessarily hear feminism. You know what I mean? No, you don't. So I'm fascinated because it's kind of like that's what was the genesis of that scene. And yet there was so much feminism that came out of that group. Can you explain that at all? I don't know if I can explain it at all, but I think that we spoke in very lofty terms about our connections to music and our aspirations. You know, I think studying politics and studying Marxist theory alongside a lot of these things, and some of the bands were pretty overtly political, there was a, a language in presentation that I find, I, I don't want to be amused by it, I don't want to diminish its 
relevance, but it is kind of like having a kid now, I'm like, oh my God, if I heard her talk like that, I don't know what I would do. I'll bust a gasket. But there was a real obsession with music. And that, I think the challenge in discovering music and not being able to really find out about things unless someone told you, one-to-one almost, or they dragged you along. When you did discover something, and you gave it that focus and that energy because you didn't have a thousand different things. I'm not an anachronist by any means. <laughs> I'm just, it's, there's a, there's a, a real clear comparison to how much we're trying to do at any given time now and the opportunity to do something with deep focus. And I think being able to find out about a band like the Melvins where really the experience is, you know, if it's not live and killing your eardrums, which is true for me, my, my ears are bad. <laughs> But listening to them, you know, in your room, on your record player, and dissecting it, and understanding the musicianship, and trying to figure out what's going on was sort of the the part of, you know, if you didn't have a language for understanding that intricacy, it wasn't, you weren't that cool. So you had to keep up. Our band, Bratmobile, was very proud of our sort of amateurism. As we were recording, as we were writing, we just kept getting better and, and knowing a little bit more as we went on. We were not intricate in our presentation. And one of the things that Allison sort of rejected was this obsessed focus of music. So, I mean, it wasn't like, but she was still, she still loved the Melvins too. They were, they were the common thread. I don't know why. Just one of those weird things. And I'm just interested because you were saying you're learning guitar chords, but you ended up as a drummer. So how did that happen? We had another woman playing drums and then she had to paint a house. She, She couldn't make a show. And so we went through the list of people that we could ask to fill in while we figured it out. And at the end of the day, I just was like, I'll do it and, and make it work. And it was so much more natural and so much more comfortable for me that it was clearly just what had to happen. Yeah, that's how I felt with drums too. I feel like, yeah, that was, that was perfect.
That was Cherry Bomb by Bratmobile. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Molly Newman. So for those of you who don't, I mean, I'm sure everyone in this room has heard the term riot girl. There were literally five women who started Riot Girl as we understand it, and you're one of them. So can you just sort of tell us how that came to be? Yeah, so Riot Girl was between Bikini Kill and our band. We all wanted to be in Washington for the summer of 1991 to hang out, basically. I I would go home and, and stay with my parents, and then Bikini Kill toured across the country, and we all sort of ended up there at the same time. And as I sort of referred to in in my talk, the Gulf War was sort of an omnipresent reality. I had, you know, not been exposed to the concept of war. I was born, I guess, while Vietnam was still happening, but I didn't know about it. And so there was an activism and response to what was happening politically that was present. So learning about nonviolence sort of response and, and, you know, protests and different ways to handle the the environment that that was taking place then. But there was also a pretty charged atmosphere in, in Washington, D.C., and, and the community that the, a lot of the punk kids lived, called Mount Pleasant, was also a very Latino community, and there had been some riots. There had been a challenge between different parts of the, of the community, and, so, and some people were killed, and it was, it was a pretty just, like, charged time. And we were in the Northwest at school, and one of our local friends in DC wrote us and, and they knew, so like sent us an article or something about the riots and said something as simple as, there's going to be a girl riot when you guys come to town. Like, and it was just a, a cool phrase and, and way to, to talk about kind of the energy that we were thinking about going into the summer. And we just flipped it. <laughs> it just seemed catchier to say riot girl than, than girl riot. <laughs> but then you, didn't you guys have like some meetings and stuff? Yeah, so we, we put together a fanzine, a really short, one page, four panel on each side, fanzine, and we handed them out at shows, and we asked two girls, and we asked them if they wanted to come to a meeting, and, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of the people that were from D.C. I mean, we were really, like, came to town, hey, we're going to do this. We were friends with people locally, but it was pretty obnoxious, probably. <laughs> but there were, there were young girls. A Positive Force was a, a community group in DC that put on a lot of shows as benefits and they had their own house, a group house, and they were very supportive because of the sort of overt political nature of what we were talking about. And they supported us and we had a, a meeting there and a lot of the younger girls that were in the, the scene came along and that was pretty much like the original Riot Girl meeting. And then you're only in control of so much stuff, right? And then I remember because at this same time that Molly was doing all this in Olympia, I was in Iowa which I'm sure none of you know where that is, and that's fine. You never have to know. It's not important. I was in college there. It's the middle of America somewhere. And there was this magazine called Sassy Magazine. And Sassy Magazine sort of just took up the torch of Riot Girl and really brought it to the rest of us in this incredible way that was really empowering. And so the next thing you know, I'm in a band called Socket Wench. Yes, it was amazing. Not that bad. It was pretty good, right? And I was playing as, as a drummer, same thing, like never played drums before, I loved it, it was my thing. And we all had like slut and bitch written all over us and we played Cool Schmoll by awesome. Bratmobile. I didn't know and that. Yeah, That's we so cool. covered 
<laughs> we just covered a bunch of Riot Girl bands because we didn't you know, have any original songs, but we wanted to be part of the movement. It was really very powerful. But I think, I mean, I think it's a little bit interesting. How did it feel for you to have something you started with your friends sort of become this national movement? It was very strange. I, you know, my, my family business, if you will, was media relations. My dad worked for the Democratic Party and, and various campaigns. When I was three, I had my first campaign loss, which has gone on to haunt me through the rest of my life, apparently. <laughs> but uh, my, my dad was working for someone who was running for governor of California, and he didn't win. But he ran the media for, for the DNC in the early 80s during the Reagan era, and I sort of camped out there a lot and observed things observed the amount of effort that people would put in to get attention for things. So when Riot Girl started to get attention, I really didn't see it as a problem. Some of the people that wanted to talk to us about it were really interested in sensationalizing it, which is so amusing. But, you know, they wanted to sort of put us on these Jerry Springer-like shows about, you know, girls who hated men or whatever it was. And, you know, we didn't do those sorts of things. But there was a response to some of the media attention that Riot Girl received and the bands that were in it received that was, you know, misquotes and all of those things that you can't control and there's no press is bad press or whatever. I kind of fell into that camp where most of the rest fell into the media blackout. We're not talking to people. If we don't control the means of production and we don't control what we say, it's not the right way to say it. And so that was, you know, there was a, a, a fracture around that. But, you know, I was also kind of moving beyond the, the original activism piece and more into the personal and the, the music and personally trying to grow as a musician and trying to grow eventually as into sort of the business side of things. So that never was really that problematic to me, but I think it did affect some of my creative collaborations because there was a difference of opinion. And there was, I mean, you know, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole for too long, but, <laughs> but it, you know, it was an interesting, it was sort of like the movement kind of collapsed on itself in a weird way because well, I there's think there's no leader, that. you know, there was no one person. There was certainly lots of dynamic, charismatic people and Kathleen Hanna, probably the one who received the most attention and scrutiny for, you know, her talent and her vision, but she was not someone, she didn't want to be, the, you know, trying to be anointed as the, the leader of this group. And because of, you know, for better or worse, a lot of the sort of models that we had were the Black Panther Party and, and other things, you know, sort of political activism from the 60s and 70s, which didn't work. And, you know, we didn't, we weren't a business. We were just trying to sort of have a comment on the times and, and have this creative aspect to it. That was, yeah, not really a sustainable thing. What I am so proud of is that the sort of resonance of it and the resonating effect of it and the continuing to meet people who were inspired by those first steps, you do see them in, in practice now. And particularly, like I was saying earlier, the, the rock and roll camps for girls where, you know, they have a group in the New York rock camp where it's groups of five-year-olds to seven-year-olds writing their first song performing it for the first time and on stage and, you know, sort of taking their space, one of the ways that they talk about it as sort of, it's not about writing the best song, clearly. It's about giving these girls 
and gender non-conforming youth, which is something they're very focused on as well, a chance to have a safe environment of encouragement and opportunity. And seeing that as maybe something of a legacy is like, it will never not make me cry. I mean, I, I, I went to a showcase last Friday of one of my, my dear friends, her daughter, who's just turned six, is doing this program now. And so I went to the show and I walked in and I almost burst into to tears, just seeing them getting ready to go on stage. It's a tremendous thing. And I think that is something that it's going to, it's still, you know, I'm impatient, like a lot of people about progress and, and, and you know, seeing evidence of some of the, the work that needs to be done, but it's happening. That was An Invitation by the Peachies. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What?, After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Molly Newman. Let's talk a little bit about your lookout days, because, you know, going from being in a band and being in the middle of a social movement to going to sort of the backstage of, like, this is how records get made. This is how, you know, we have to put things out into the world has to have been, I mean, it was shocking for me. So I, I know that that's a surprise. And interestingly, Lookout, you know, was known for pop punk. So, you know, sort of like the opposite of, you know, <laughs> not, and, and it's interesting now too to see a band like Green Day have a hit 15 years after they release a song with the same song because it's political. It's kind of, you know, I think there's a, it's an interesting reality. But yeah, just getting, I needed a job. It seemed like interesting work. And, you know, working with people that I thought were interesting and cool and, and something, a chance to learn. And so, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I, I would say, like, to my team now, I'm like, okay, because most of them are just out of college. <laughs> so we have to go through a lot of emotions sometimes, you know, and if they, they feel pressure on, on things. And, you know, I'm trying to guide them and, and give them, you know, the best leg forward for what they're doing. But, you know, reminding them that we're not curing cancer, you know, with music publishing administration. <laughs> you know, we can make mistakes and we can learn from them. And, and you know, I have had really painful mistakes in, in the business, but that is, you know, part of life and part of growing and, and learning. One of the weird things about running a label after being an artist, though, is is how suddenly you're kind of the man sometimes to artists. You yes. know, you're just, you just flip yes. like that. Yes. 
So that's, uh, I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I, re- I remember sort of the later era of Lookout where I should have been a little bit more like of an and, you know, a band calling me up and, you know, yelling at me because they wanted to spend something on their video. And there was no reason, there was no good reason for them to need a video. There was no good reason for us to fund it. But they were just berating me. And I was like, this is awful, you know. And, and really, this is one of those, when I was at Kickstarter and I would look at ways that a band could make the case for their creative project that like a lot of the the things that people would come to us at Lookout with, with like, I want to do this. I want to, can you fund this? It was almost like we were their, you know, patron, if you will. And so I was like, God, if we had been able to say, we'll match it. If you raise the first $2,500, we will throw in the next 25 because there's a case to be made. There's someone who really wants this to happen, but this doesn't work in our budget right now. And being a little bit more strict with how we managed our P&L and how we managed, you know, what we were trying to do, it would have been much healthier. And actually, that's really one of the hardest things about having a label where you're basically putting out your friends' bands is because you have to turn into this sort of hard ass in a situation where you don't want to be that person. So, I mean, that's that's one of the issues with labels that rise out of scenes, you know. In general, but when you were still at Lookout, you sort of presided over that moment in America where we decided it was time for us to have an indie label trade association. Right. So towards the end of Lookout, I had moved to New York and I was sort of finding my my way in in a new city, working remotely, doing artist management as well. And there was a call from uh, Leslie Bleakley from the Beggars Group. Beggars US at that time was still relatively small, but growing. And they were putting together a meeting of indie labels in, in New York. And it sounded like a place I should be. I, I, was tr- I was still kind of, you know, trying to make friends and find, you know, common people that I, things I could, you know, collaborate with. And so I went to this meeting and at the end of it, it was really about starting a trade association for Indies in the U.S. and at the end of it, they asked for volunteers for people who would be interested and available to help search for the first president. And not really having anything else to do, I threw my hand up. And the next ten months, that group of volunteers and people who were recruited to be a part of it became the first board of A2IM. And so that was Steve Gottlieb from TVT and Tom Silverman from Tommy Boy, Glenn from Bar None, Peter from Thirsty Ear, and Michael Koch. It was a relatively small group and Leslie. And then once we found the first president with a person named Don Rose, that became the board and there were a couple people added. I was on the board of HYM for the first six years of the organization. Yes. And then for a while we were on the board together and then you left and then I was the only woman for a period of time. And that was really kind of... Just making some progress there this year, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're getting better. We're getting better. So I think having had the experience of being in a band and running an indie label has really positioned you very properly for the rest of your career, right? In terms of like, you understand what our issues are. You understand what we need. I love it that we're having an industry now where everybody's really healthy and we have people like you who can come along and help us because you know what we need. Right. I mean, I think that's so much better than it it has been in other times in history. Well, you know, I think one of the opportunities I had was to serve on the board of Sound Exchange when I was at A2IM, when I was on the staff of A2IM. 
And so the Board of Sound Exchange is probably similar to boards here in Australia where, you know, you have representatives of independents and you have artists and you have musicians union and we have the labels, the indies and the majors. And so to hear how the whole group talked about the industry was fascinating. And you hear the industry representatives talk about the artists. You always hear them talk about decisions being made for the artists and in the interests of the artists and the artists are going to ask us about this. And then you think, what do you know? You don't know anything about what the artists are like because, you know, you're a fat cat. And I would never say that, but I, I have had that thought that, you know, not that the artist board representatives didn't have that front and center in, in what they were working on, but but there's a lot of lip service to that aspiration. And I think that the healthy place that we are in is an industry, not just economically, but with these platforms and, and resources that make what we're all aiming to do just be so much wiser and giving balance to the experience and understanding of the industry issues to the artists and managers. And the investment that, the, that labels make, hopefully, is just a much healthier, less risky one too. That if the stakeholders all understand the issues more substantially, then you know we're all making more informed decisions and less sort of roll of the dice. Okay, you can have your $2,500 video and you just sh shut up, I don't want to talk to you kind of decisions, you know? That was Bitch Theme by Bratmobile. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Molly Newman. I mean, you also have been in the industry through the whole craziness of the last 15 years, you know, basically how we moved from a physical market to a digital market. And, you know, for all of us in the room who've, who've lived through that, that was really quite, I would say that's probably the biggest crisis we've all faced in recent times because it completely changed the way the industry operates. So now I feel like I say this all the time on my podcast, but I feel like it's worth saying all the time. In order for artists to make a living and be career artists, which I think is what all independent labels want, is to have career artists. We're not, we're not the majors. We're not in the business of making hit songs. We're just not. That's not where we sit. We need our artists to have careers. 
in order to have a career, an artist has to be on top of a zillion tiny pieces of income and yeah. places that that income is coming from. Yeah. So I think one of the cool things about you moving to, into the publishing world is now you can help explain that side to me so I can <laughs> explain it to artists. It's I awesome. So. I mean, I'll have to say that, you know, I have a catalog of 50 songs myself and or something like that. I should probably know that precise number, but five or six albums and I didn't have publishing administration, so I was literally leaving in the U.S. It's a, you know, it's a pretty black and white situation. If you don't have someone to collect your streaming mechanicals for you, it is very, very, very difficult. And it's hard to do that on a global basis as well. So when I started at SongTrust, I became a client, and you know, I'm already seeing some of the impact of that. It is unfortunate that you know the certain segment of the community who doesn't fit the bill for, you know, publishing has really long been about a big advance and hits. So this new creator class of people who can release their own music, make it in their bedroom or their office and collaborate with someone and, and put it up on a service and start generating, you know, micro pennies. <laughs> for sure. But it's theirs. And if they don't collect it, eventually won't be available to them. So, you know, it is, it's an interesting and I think exciting thing for me to be a part of that. It's a lot of education. I had to educate myself. And now I'm trying to, you know, help work with other businesses and, and artists and, and management companies to, to see if our platform is the right fit. And it's pretty cool. So with the MMA, the Music Modernization Act, I know we're going to talk about this in State of the Nations, but just a little preview. If that actually happens, which at this point, who knows what will happen in the U.S. Congress, possibly absolutely nothing, likely absolutely nothing. But if it were to pass, it would create this new statutory royalty for mechanicals for streaming. And it would create a body that collects those. I mean, the statutory royalty exists. It would create a body to collect those, right. those it royalties. Would, it would help the sort of unmatched, unclaimed universe, right? Right, and it, and it kind of creates a little bit of a mandate for artists to have to be affiliated with a publisher in order to collect those royalties. Right, and so, there's different ways of doing that, you know, whether you use a, a company or you do it yourself entirely. There are, I think one of the things that the MMA is, you know, aims to solve is for people who really don't have any capacity to do it on their own, right? I mean, half of the technological solutions, I'm sure you guys feel the same way, half of the technological solutions we get actually just create more work for all of us. Like, have you noticed that? It's like, hey, we found a great new way for you, to, you guys to do something that's going to take like 30 hours. I mean, we had a meeting at the A2IM Indie Week general meeting with Spotify. And basically, they just sat on the stage for an hour and told us that, you know, they'd created all these great tools for us to do all this work that we could now do with their tools. And I'm like, wait, why, why isn't someone doing something to make my life easier? Please. Not that they weren't helpful. I mean, they're very well, helpful. I, I mean, I think what you're talking about too is that the level of sophistication that's required now is like is really significant, and it's really not an option for an artist, a manager, attorney, label, publisher, anyone to say, "I'm just focused on the creativity." It just doesn't fly, and it's really hard. And I think that might be discouraging to some, which is you know that'll be what it is. But it is hopefully there's a way to consider it that it's an empowering thing. And yeah, you have to maybe, you know, really be wise about running your business and, you know, look after all of these, you know, smaller streams. But the evidence now is that those smaller streams are a significant source of income and, you know, a real healthy part of, of where we are today. So, you know, it's not easy. 
but I think again that they, you know you ha having this conversation, the, uh, all of the the panels and, and things that are being presented here at IndyCon, this is real granular stuff. And to I think we missed dinner last night, but I think what what Stu mentioned is that the class and sort of intellect that is here that we have available in one another is tremendous. And you know I hope that that's we all feel really connected and and trying to access it from one another because this is where the the strength lies. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that can't be made too often is that, you know, I remember when A2IM started in America and I was a member early because my husband was like the second wave of people and then I took over for him. We had some trouble recruiting independent labels to join A2IM and the excuse was always, well, I'm independent, meaning like I'm a maverick and I'm John Wayne and I ride my horse into the sunset on my own. And I think what we've learned, if we've learned anything in the last 15 years, is that we're stronger together, for sure. You know, you can be as independent as you want. You can put out, you know, sounds that your cat makes at 3 a.m. And if that's your, like, passion in life, you know, whatever you want. You don't have to do something that other people think is the mainstream, but we're going to be stronger if we do it together. So since we have you on the stage just for a couple more minutes and we have a spotlight on your face and everything... What advice would you, you know, from your long storied career, what advice would you give to independent labels, independent artists, you know, through just what you know? Yeah, I, I, I think that it's almost just a little bit beyond what we were just talking about, that sort of continuing to learn and, you know, a lot of labels start because they have access to exciting songwriters, exciting performers, and they have maybe a little capital that they've saved away and it's, you know, they can fund a recording and, and find it. Now it's super easy to find distribution and you can get it out there. So if that's the profile and you started in, in your bedroom and, and you just had this one idea to not rest on that expertise, that you're not necessarily just a genius A&R person, that there's still more to learn and grow and develop and, and to become, you know, responsible, hopefully ethically responsible business person who keeps up with the accounting, keeps up with the obligations that are, you know, legal and creative. And, you know, if you don't know something and you can't afford to hire someone, you know, put in those, the sweat equity keep learning and, and figuring it out. I mean, I, I see you doing that, right? You're trying to, sometimes you'll have to hire the expert and, and I know there are a lot of experts in this room that you know work with and collaborate with the industry, but that we all have the capacity to keep adding to our knowledge and, and that's something I think is really exciting. So Bratmobile's album Potty Mouth turns 25 this year and we are putting out a special edition of it. It's like gonna be a limited edition. Wasn't that fun pretty. figuring out the colors for the vinyl? I mean, the, working with these girls 25 years later, I'm just like, oh man. Yes. It took a long time. <laughs> Surprisingly long time to figure out the colors. But anyway, it's going to be beautiful. It'll be pink and black. And as part of, of that experience, that, that rollout, we are doing a podcast series. And so I've been interviewing a lot of people, a lot of young artists who have been inspired by Bratmobile. And so I just have to say it's been really amazing. Wow to listen to these young women talk about how your band made such a big difference to them and helped them become the artists that they are. It's really like the most humbling thing to think about and the most, you know, I just don't ever want to not appreciate the fact that that is true because having inspiration from others 
I never really had a mentor per se. I never had someone who said, Molly, you've got to do this this way, which I, you know, sometimes that's a model. People talk about mentorship a lot or, or sponsorship sometimes. But I think that to hear that there is someone where a seed might have been planted overtly or, you know, not, but it's manifesting now in a way that, you know, they're making creative work, making records that probably sold a lot more than ours. <laughs> it's awesome. And I, I, you know, I just don't think it's, that's the, the incredible opportunity that music's given me. And, you know, it's tremendous. And on that note, I'd like to have everybody join me in thanking Molly Newman. <laughs> Thank you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Bratmobile, The Peachies, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.